If you would take your Bibles and turn in them to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. Today we're going to begin a new sermon series that we're going to be looking at for the next, haven't decided yet, month, six weeks, seven weeks or so, where we are looking at the topic of hope. This seems a little bit fitting as it's a new year. There's something about turning over the calendar to a new calendar year, uh, starting a new semester of school perhaps for our students. That is, is always uh, a fitting time where we're looking ahead, right? We're thinking about the life that we hope to have. Uh, maybe making resolutions is a very hopeful act that we're committing to act towards some of these things that we desire. Uh, but it's, it's more than that. We are Christians, and as Christians, we have hope in Christ that is unknown to anyone else. There is a Christian hope that we have through our union with Christ that is worth exploring, that's worth talking about. Uh, it's a hope that it, it, it functions as an emotional reservoir for us. It buoys us up in times of trouble. It gives us perseverance. It can give us patience through our trials. And so there's so much to say like I said, six, seven, eight weeks. I don't know how long it'll take, but we're going to explore the topic of hope in the Bible. I'm going to ex- introduce it a little bit more in a moment, even as this, this sermon today is a little bit introductory to this uh, sort of series that we do on the topic of our hope that we have as Christians. But first, I want to read this passage. This is one of my favorite passages on hope. Uh, so let me ask you, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we read God's holy word? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've caused this paragraph to be written for our instruction, for our edification, for our encouragement. Lord, we pray that you would give us a portion of your spirit to open our eyes, to understand and to love this text, to read it, Uh, to remember it, to call upon it, to depend upon it. We ask that you would use your word in our lives to make us more like Christ, to strengthen us and to encourage us, to build us up, to give us new patience, new endurance in the face of our trials. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, since we're starting a new series on hope, I spent a lot of time this week thinking about the things that I hope for. 
And some of them, of course, are kind of superficial, maybe a little bit shallow, maybe some are simple. I hope the sports teams that I cheer for do well this year. I hope that we have hamburgers for dinner one night this week. Uh, I hope that the rain doesn't start too early tomorrow because the commute would be horrible if it does. I hope to someday live in a house that has bigger closets on at least 10 acres of land with a nice garden and a nice view of the mountains out the back. Half forest, half meadow. Is this so much to ask? <laughs> and of course, some of the things that I hope for are a little weightier than that. We have more substantial hopes as well. I hope for good health. I've been pretty blessed to have good health most of my life, but I've also had just enough experience of health problems that I know I don't like them. And I hope to experience good health in the future years. I hope that 10 years from now, I'll still be healthy enough that our family can go camping in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota and hear the loons by day and see the northern lights at night. I have hopes for our family. Of course, I have hopes for our children. What brings out the hope in us more than children and dreaming about their future? I hope that they stay healthy. I hope that they continue to grow in uh, their knowledge of the Lord and in their faith in the Lord and their love for him and their love for others. We continue to see more fruit in their lives as they get bigger. Of course, as a pastor, I have hopes for our church. I hope that we continue to, to add new people to our church and to grow. You know, I've always thought maybe 150-ish is a good number for a church. You know, enough people that you can find people to volunteer for all the stuff that needs to be done, but not so big that you feel lost and anonymous at the church. I hope that we add somebody who's a really good violinist. Or that one of you becomes a really good violinist. I've always thought it would be great to have a violinist accompany us as we sing. Um, I hope that we become a church that, that loves to worship together, even more than we do already. That finds great joy and delight in, in responding to the call to worship and coming into the presence of God, in laying down our burdens, in opening the word together. I hope that we be, continue to become a church that loves to fellowship, that, that loves to serve each other, that loves to reach out, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and, and to weep with those who weep, that's eager to serve together, and that we become a body of people who loves to see things that need to be done and, and is willing to, to give ourselves, knowing that we serve not only one another and those around us, but we are serving the Lord in doing those things. I wonder what you're hopeful for, not only this year, but this life. You know, as I thought this week about the things that I hope for, and, and at the same time in preparing this series on the biblical hope, the Christian hope, right? There's something unique that Christians have. There's a hope that we have that is unique as believers, that there is something in the future that we look towards. And I was thinking about my hopes, and I was thinking about those hopes that the Bible gives us, and I couldn't help but notice that my hopes, you know, they're not, they're not insignificant, they're important, they're my hopes, but nevertheless, I couldn't help but think how small they seem compared to the biblical hope, compared to that solid hope that the Bible gives to believers and says, here is what you have to look forward to. 
here is what you can confidently expect in your life and in the life to come. It holds out this hope, and I thought, my hope is, is actually kind of small compared to the glory that is yet to come. Not only that, but I realized in thinking about my hopes that the truth is sometimes I'm actually afraid to hope for too much. If you ever feel that way, that you want to dream big dreams, but it's kind of scary, right? You don't want to get your hopes up too much and then just risk all the disappointment that comes when those hopes are dashed. And so I I realize that I, I feel that way. But as we look at the hope that the Bible gives to us, that is held out to believers, that that comes with our union with Christ, what I realize is the Bible doesn't tell us to be afraid. It doesn't doesn't tell us, you know, lower your expectations. It actually does quite the opposite. It says to most of us, what we are hoping for is, is far too small. It says raise your expectations. Don't be timid. Think about the prayer that we just prayed together. What do we pray for? Thy kingdom come. That is a bold prayer that reflects a a glorious hope that God's kingdom is going to come. That Jesus Christ is faithful and he will one day bring all this to pass that he has promised to us. That is our hope. The Bible would tell us, don't just pray for a little bit of evangelistic success. Pray that that one day the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Right, the Bible is raising our expectations. It's giving us this hope, this great hope. And not only does it raise our expectations, but the Bible tells us the hope that we have as Christians is absolutely certain. We're going we're gonna to come back to that in just a minute, this little distinction about the way we so often talk about hoping for things and the way the Bible talks about our hope. But what I want to do today is to introduce uh, the topic of hope and to talk about the way we talk about it and to talk about the effect of biblical hope on Christians. Actually, three points. One, uh, introduce it. How do we talk about hope? Number two, what effect does it have when you have hope? And then number three, to have some glimpses of our hope. There's so much to say about hope in the Bible. I'm very excited for this series, but but we'll just introduce it today. Think about the ways we talk about hope. I think we actually use the word in a couple different ways, three different ways. And each of those ways has sort of a counterpart to the way the Bible uses that word. So what's the first way we talk about hope? Well, the normal way is to talk about a desire that we have for something good. Right? So I hope that we have hamburgers for dinner one night this week is just a desire that I have. That's my hope, right? It's a sort of an emotion, a desire within me. This is probably the most common way we talk about hope is we hope for things. We hope that certain things will come to pass. We hope that certain other things won't come to pass. The Bible talks about our hope. I I think of this as sort of the subjective hope, right? It's my hope. Uh, And the Bible talks about that. Uh, Think about Lamentations 3. Jeremiah uh, is surveying all of the destruction, all of the the horrible things that have happened to Jerusalem. Uh, And he talks about uh, the suffering that he has been to. And then he says... But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his, mer- his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He says he, he's looking at the, the, the terrible things, the destruction and the suffering. He says, but if I call the Lord's character to mind, I have hope. 
right? It, it wells up within him. He has this subjective hope, a desire for good things. That's the first way we use the word hope. The second way we can use the word hope is sometimes we use the word hope to designate the thing which we are hoping for, right? The thing that we are hoping for is our hope. So in my silly example of hoping we have hamburgers, it's, it's the hamburger. That is my hope. Right? I, my hope is for a hamburger. Um, and so we use the word to talk about the thing that we desire. As Christians, there is a lot to say under that category, as in what is the Christian hope? What is the thing which we as believers have to look forward to uh, that, that is our hope? And we can talk about a lot. The, the return of Jesus is our hope, right? Um, being openly acquitted on the day of judgment uh, because we have been justified is our hope. Uh, the resurrection of the dead, the life to come, right? L- life everlasting uh, with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope. There is these promises that we have to look forward to as believers. We can say that is our hope. That is the thing that we desire. Uh, and then there's the third way. So there's the desire there is the thing desired. And then the third way we talk about hope, uh, we sometimes say the basis or the grounds for the fulfillment of that hope, we talk about our hope. So, for instance, if I say, um, I saw a bunch of ground beef in the fridge yesterday, and that is my only hope. Right? That, that's the reason I can have some expectation that we're going to have burgers this week, is I saw the stuff, I saw the ingredients, and they were there, right? If you're in a sailboat race, you say, well, a, a good solid tailwind is our only hope, right? You're, you're saying my hope is the reason or the grounds that I have some optimism that my hope is going to be fulfilled. As believers, uh, uh, to take it uh, to a different level, as believers, we might say the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is our hope, Right? Because if not for that, then we would have no good expectation going forward. But we look back and we say, Jesus has been raised from the dead. The Spirit has been poured out. We have the first fruits. Right? Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. So we could say, that is our only hope. Because if that didn't happen, then we have no good expectation of further things in the future. So hope can be our desire. It can be the thing we hope for. Or it can be the grounds for our expectation. It can be sort of present, it can be future, it can be past. And all three of those, the Bible uses the word hope in all of those ways, which means sometimes it's a little complicated to talk about, but we're going to spend time on each one of those things. Uh, we're going to spend at least several sermons talking about what is our hope? What are the, the things in the future that we as believers look forward to and that we are counting on these things are going to happen? We're going to spend at least some time talking about the basis, the ground of our hope in the past, that, that the resurrection of Christ from the dead is our only hope, and that that secures and guarantees for us that which is to come. But, but the Bible also talks about this, this feeling of hope, the desire that is within us, and we're going to talk about that as well. And my hope is that, that probably the last sermon will be, will be answering the question of what do we do when we have lost hope? Because in that sort of subjective sense, in that sense of our hope, our desire that we feel, part of the human experience is that that, that waxes and wanes, that it comes and goes. There are times that we feel very hopeful for what's to come, 
And those are good times, and that can get us through a lot. But most of us know there are times when we feel very hopeless. Part of our, our fallen condition as humans living in this world is that there are times when we lose our hope. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. So we will address the question, uh, what do we do when hope breaks, when we've lost our hope? But to see the seriousness of losing hope, think about the effect that hope has. The effect that hope has. When you have hope, uh, it changes you. Right? The, the very nature of hope is that when we have hopes for the future, it changes the way we live in the present. There is something fundamental about humans. Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. Right? Everyone has some hope within them of something. Right? You know, it's not about whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Even a pessimist has the hope. They have this idea of a better life or a better world, this vision that they long to see. You know, they may have no hope that it's going to come to pass. And that's why we call them a pessimist. But the hope is still there. It, it's buried that they have a vision of the better life that they desire. And I don't think it's going too far to say that for humans, the way we live now is shaped and determined by what we believe about the future. Right? The way that we live our lives in the present is always determined by what we believe to be true about the future. And, and that determines the way that we live our lives. It can change the way that we spend our money. It can change the way that we raise our children. It certainly changes the way that we react when we hear bad news, does it not? It can change the way that we endure suffering. It can determine the amount of courage that we have in facing difficult circumstances. What we believe about the future that is yet to come determines the way that we live now. And, and here is what is unique, in one sense, about the Christian hope. Is that for Christians, our hope is guaranteed. And this is different than the way we just kind of casually use the word hope most of the time, right? Most of the time when we're casually talking, we, we talk about hope as something that's uncertain, right? The kids will say, I hope we get to see Nana and Papa soon. And I say, I hope so, right? I don't know that we will. There's no trips on the calendar, but I hope that we do. That would be nice. But we're talking about something we desire, but we don't know. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. When Christians talk about our Christian hope, we're talking about something that is certain, right? That is guaranteed. It's future. We might not know the when or the how it's going to get there, but we know that it will come to pass. And this is the way the Bible is talking about our hope. And that makes all the difference. To say that the Christian hope is guaranteed makes all the difference in the way that it affects our lives today. Let me give a couple of examples, and I'll give a light example, and then I'll give a more weighty example. So the light example first, for fun. Uh, some of you know that the Cubs are the most important baseball team. Um, and in 2003, you remember, the Cubs were really good. And they were in the midst of this lengthy drought. You know, they hadn't won the World Series since 1908. But, but in 2003, they were really good. And, and we all had this hope. This might be the year that ends it all. Right? This could be the year they go all the way and they get into the playoffs and they get through the divisional series and they get into the National League Championship Series against the Marlins. We're not talking about Game 6. 
That's not important for those who remember it. But they get to game seven, right? And so here it is. It all rides on this game. If they win, they go to the World Series. All our hopes would be coming true. And I remember that year, I was at my parents' house for that game. I couldn't watch it. I was so nervous because I knew the glory that would come if they made it to the World Series. And I knew that the just abject disappointment that would come if they lost that game, again, the futility of life, right? And so I was so nervous, I couldn't, I couldn't bear to watch it. I had no perseverance to endure through watching that game. So I was just walking around the house all night, trying to find something to do to keep myself busy because I couldn't face reality. I, you know, I hoped they would win, but I had no guarantee. I didn't know what was going to happen. Now, I remember another time, and it was about a year ago. I was at my in-law's house, and there was a really important to us college football game that we wanted to watch that day. Uh, now, uh, we were busy that day, so we TiVoed the game, and we were going to watch it that evening. Now, I, being an impatient person, checked my phone, and I knew before we started watching the game, I knew that we were going to win. I, I just saw the score. And we were going to win, but I watched the game anyway. And in some sense, it was actually easier for me to watch that game. Like, it was more enjoyable. I remember there was one time in the third quarter of the game, things started looking really bad. Like, we made some big mistakes. The other team started to put things together. And, and it looked like the tides were going to turn. It looked like everything was going to go you know, out the window for us. But you know what? I didn't even despair. Because I knew how this thing was going to end. I knew that we won in the end. And so I, I was watching this and I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Right? Things aren't looking good now, but I know how, how it ends. Right? I know that, that we win in the end. And so, you know, this is, I might be on the edge of my seat, but I'm not despairing anymore. It doesn't have me despairing. And that's what Christian hope is like. We know the ending, don't we? We know who wins in the end. The Bible tells us how things are going to go in the end. We don't know how we're going to get there, but we know what happens. And so when things start to look bad, now, we can still be sad, right? We still grieve, but we don't despair because we're not like those who have no hope. We have hope, and we know how it's going to end. So in a sense, it's like we can say, this is going to be interesting, right? I don't know how this is going to all play out. Things are looking really bad right now, but we know how this ends. We know what happens in the future because the Bible tells us that we expect glory and joy on that last day, and we will be in the presence of our Savior forever. Now, if that's the light example, think of this one. In 1947, Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard University on the meaning of of the Negro spirituals that had been sung by African-American slaves in the antebellum South. And he was asking the question of why those songs were so filled with references to heaven and to glory and to the robes and and the crowns that the saints were going to wear in glory and, and references to the judgment day that it was yet to come. And it's not hard to see, is it, why people in that condition, going through such suffering and so many trials, suffering such injustice, would want to sing about a better day to come. That they would be constantly singing songs about heaven and glory and joy. Because that was what got them through. And and Thurman said this, 
uh, he said that singing such songs served to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. And it taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argued most dramatically against hope. Right? Because they knew that one day God was going to set every injustice right. They knew that there was no suffering that they endured in this life that would not be made up for a hundred times and more in the life to come. They knew how it ended. They knew how it ended. Look at Romans 8, chapter 18, the first verse that we read, where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, what Paul is saying is Paul knows how it ends. Paul knows what his hope for the future is, and in light of the glory that is to be revealed, therefore he says, I look at the sufferings of this present time, and he doesn't diminish them. But he does say, they're not worth comparing. Right? He has a new perspective. Just think of what comes later in this chapter. If you know chapter 8, he writes about how all things work together for good for those who love God. He talks about how uh, those chosen by God are certainly destined to be glorified. He talks about a God who... Uh, uh, having not spared his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And he talks about how there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. He has all of these things, these, these hopes, this certain knowledge that he has of the way things are going to end. And when he knows all of those things to be true, he says you gain a new endurance, new perspective, new patience. And so he sees his, his sufferings and he says those simply aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to come. And if you remember Paul, his sufferings were very significant, weren't they? Now, <clears throat> it's usually not good to play the, the comparing my sufferings to yours game. Right? Everyone loses when we play a game like that. But, uh, but still, think of Paul's life. He had his share of difficulties. He, he was in prison multiple times. Uh, there were beatings, right, within an inch of his life, the 40 lashes minus one. He was stoned. And he was stoned, if you remember in Acts, he was stoned to the point that the people stoning him thought they had finished the job. And they left because they thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead. And, and his disciples dragged him out of the city and, and he revived, right? But he had been stoned. Uh, beaten, prison, he was in a shipwreck, he says he was a night and a day adrift at sea. Right? When it comes to suffering, Paul knows the terrain, he knows what he's talking about, but he also says all of those things aren't worth comparing to what is yet to come. He think, says when he thinks about the glory that is to be revealed, this hope that he has for the future, this certainty, there's a whole new perspective and a whole new amount of endurance that he has in getting through those trials. And here is one of my goals for us during this series on hope is to get to that point. Right? To, to, in thinking about our hope that we have as Christians, that we will also gain a new perspective on the trials of this present life. That we will gain a new strength for endurance. That we will be granted a new reservoir of patience that we will be given new capacities for joy in the midst of our trials, 
because we can go into them saying, we know how this ends, and it's good news in the end. Hebrews 6. You don't have to turn there, but it talks about finding, holding fast to the hope that is set before us, which we have as a sure and steady anchor for the soul. Isn't that what we need? We need a a sure and steady anchor to hold us steady in the midst of a life that often feels like the big waves are coming one after the other. But he says we hold fast to hope, which is a sure and steady anchor for our soul. Now, a few glimpses of hope here in in Romans chapter 8, and there's a lot of them. But think about these verses we read. Um, And if we kind of work backwards, if we look at verse 24, he gets to the end of, of this paragraph and he says, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. For in this hope. So what is the hope? Well, uh, verse 23, we can read this. Uh, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's a couple glimpses of the hope that is ours. And it's not exhaustive, but here's a couple glimpses. He says our hope is adoption and redemption. Right? Adoption and redemption. Now, with both of these things, right, we think about these, you might might hear those and you say, well, those aren't future. How is that hope? Uh, Both of them, they're kind of, they're present and they're future. Right? They're both. Uh, So adoption, we've been adopted. We've already been adopted by God. We're addressed as the sons of God. Um, he even says in, in chapter 8 verse 15 right above he says you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father uh, but also he says there's, there's this future event that is the revealing of the sons of God that all of creation is waiting for there's this future revealing uh, John Stott says there is yet a richer father-child relationship yet to come. A time when we will dwell with him. We will be his people. He will be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. See, at that point, uh, at that point we're actually experiencing what a father-child relationship is like. Right? right now, we know that it is true, and we experience some of the benefits. But on that day, right, then we will live with our father. He will be our God. We're his people. He will wipe away our tears. That's what a father does. Right? So th- there's this, this richer sense that is yet to come. Same with redemption. Right? We have been redeemed by Jesus. But he says we await the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. And so uh, we could go earlier in the chapter, he talks about how our spirits have been made alive with Christ. Right? We're new creations but our bodies have not yet been redeemed, not yet set free from the bondage to decay. Right? That's why we get sick. That's why we have injuries. That's why our bodies break down with age and eventually we die. Because there's this bondage to decay. But what he's talking about is we await the redemption of our bodies. That time when it's not just our spirit that is saved, but our bodies as well will be redeemed. Right? When we get when we are glorified and our body is raised from the dead. That's one of the the hopes of Christians. We're going to talk about that, a whole sermon on the resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? What does it mean that part of our hopes as Christians 
is not just that we will sort of exist and live eternally as spirits, but that we will experience eternal life bodily, with bodies that have been raised from the dead, right? We say that in the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. That is our bodies at that great day when Jesus returns being given new life. And he's talking about that. We await the redemption of our bodies. And this is our hope. This is part of our hope, right? He's, He's mentioning some glimpses of our hope into which we have been saved. The hope of this, this fuller adoption, the revealing of the sons of God, the hope for the redemption of our bodies. Uh, but even this, if we take one more step back, is part of this bigger vision of hope in verses 19 through 22. Right, so verse 19, the creation. So, so he's talking here with a you know, wide-angle lens. He's talking this big picture. The entire creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, here in verse 20, we get this little uh, just snapshot of this big biblical theology of, of history, right? Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, so here he's talking about creation itself. The entire creation has been subjected to futility. And so he's going back to Genesis. He's talking about the fall and the curse that God pronounces on, not just on man, right, but it's on all of creation. He, he curses the, he says the, the plants of the field are going to produce thorns and thistles, right? So the curse affects all of creation. And he says, he calls that being subjected to futility, right, to frustration. Um, and, and we all experience that. We all know what that is like, um, And he says it was subjected in hope of what would happen in the future. And I believe what he's referring to there is Genesis 3.15, where even as God is pronouncing the curse upon man for their disobedience and on all of creation, do you remember, even part of that is the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent even as he is pronouncing the the consequences for their disobedience, at the very same time, he's giving them the hope of how it is all going to be undone, right? Of how everything is going to be put right again in the end. He talks about the seed of the woman, uh, which is Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. And so he talks about the creation being subjected to futility, but, but done so in hope. In hope, he says, uh, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And so from the very beginning, God had purposes, and those purposes were going to stand. He was not going to destroy his good creation. He was going to redeem it. He was going to save it. That's the whole storyline of the world. And here, Paul gives us this picture. He says, the entire creation is groaning. We're, we're waiting for that day, right, when God is going to set all things right. When, when God is going to, to, to take us, right, the, the revealing of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies, because there's all these good things and all of creation is, long, is, is longing for that and groaning for it. And then what he says is, uh, verse 23, he brings us into it as well. And he says, it's not just the creation that is groaning with this longing. 
but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And isn't that the Christian experience? Right? He's saying that, that here we are, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, right? So he's saying don't over-spiritualize the Christian experience. It's not as though as Christians we no longer you know, experience trouble or have difficulty or sadness. No, he says, even we, yes, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but nevertheless, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Right? That's our experience in this world, is often groaning and waiting, but nevertheless, there is a hope. And so he says, in this hope, we were saved. Right? It is in this hope, when we are saved, right? when we, by faith, are united to Christ, we are brought into this storyline that is suffused with hope. Right? The storyline where the entire creation is hoping. It's longing. It's waiting with eager expectation for what God is going to do. And as believers, we're brought into that. Right? Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says that before we were in Christ, we didn't have God and we didn't have hope. If you're not in Christ, there is no hope. Right? Ultimately, hope is a uniquely Christian thing that only those united to Christ know. Because you're saved into hope. But now, for those who are saved, for those who know Jesus, we have an eager expectation. Right? We're waiting. We're longing. Maybe at the same time, we're groaning inwardly. Right? Because we know the frustration. We know the futility. The whole creation was subjected to futility because of sin, and we feel that but we know how this game ends. We have hope. We, we, you know, we've seen this show before. We've read it. We know what happens. We know the glory that awaits us. And so then we can join with Paul in verse 18 and say, we too can consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to this glory that is yet to be revealed. There is a glory that's yet to be revealed. And Paul says, right, there's these funny little sentences, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, right? But if we wait for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There is something that we do not see that the Bible promises is ours. And that's our hope. That's our hope. What we're going to do in future weeks is to, to, to define that hope and to explore that hope and to look more specifically in some different passages about what it is that we're waiting for. What are these promises that we don't now see, but that give us the reservoir to live in a suffering world, that give us patience, that give us endurance, that give us joy, that, that give us that ability to, to you know, see trials come and for us to say, this is going to be interesting, because right? we know how it ends. That is our hope. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. Thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. Thank you for our hope. Thank you that there is, in fact, nothing in all creation that can separate us from your love for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that all things work together for the good of those who love you. Lord, thank you that although we suffer and although we endure, uh, sometimes heartbreakingly, the, the, the trials of this fallen world in which we live. Thank you that there is a glory that is yet to come. And Lord, we do pray that by the work of your Spirit, you would press these verses 
onto our hearts. Lord, would you change us through them? Would you use them to give us patience and to give us joy? We pray in Jesus' name.